I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you as ever by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland and joining me today are Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK and Joe Byrne in Kildare, Ireland. And in today's episode, we will be talking about Tierra del Fuego, an archipelago off the southernmost tip of the South American mainland across the Strait of Magellan. Tierra del Fuego, which translates to Land of Fire, consists of a main island, Isla Grande de Tierra del Fuego, often simply called Tierra del Fuego or Isla Grande, with an area of 48,000 square kilometers or roughly 18,000 square miles, and a group of smaller islands. First settled by humans around 8000 BCE, Ferdinand Magellan was among the first Europeans to explore the area in 1520, giving them their name. In 1830, a British crew visited the region in HMS Beagle, naming the main channel that runs through the archipelago after the vessel. Widespread displacement and even genocide of the native populations took place in the second half of the 19th century, particularly after the discovery of gold in the region in 1879. Following dispute in 1978, the main island is now split between Argentina and Chile. The eastern part of the main island and a few small islands in the Beagle Channel, around 39% of the total area, belong to Argentina, while the western part of the main island and almost all the other islands, around 61% of the total area, officially belong to Chile. The archipelago is divided by an east-west channel, the Beagle Channel, immediately south of the main island, and in total, the land area of Tierra del Fuego is roughly equivalent in size to Slovakia, or is slightly smaller than the US state of West Virginia. The climate here is generally cold and wet, and has been compared to that of the Faroe Islands. Although the region is split between two nations, the total population as a whole is estimated to be around 135,000, of whom around 125,000 live on the Argentinian side. Tierra del Fuego is also famous for its biodiversity, but since the 1940s, a colony of invasive beavers have been perhaps the most notorious animal resident. So let's kick off by talking about some things that we're looking forward to discussing today. So uh, Mark, how about you go first? Uh, look, look, looking forward is maybe is maybe over egging it, but uh, I certainly found it very uh, illuminating to read. Uh, I think for the first time, actually, some personal accounts of Captain Cook. I mean, he he he's popped up in many of our episodes, but I think for whatever reason, I never have really kind of read too much about him. But frankly, I've okay. now read far too much about him. <laughs> okay, fair enough. His awful thoughts, which I now can't get out of my head. So uh, I'm mm, looking forward to telling you all what a terrible person James Cook is. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And Joe, what about you? Well, m- mine's quite prosaic. I-, I just love that so many of the things we're going to talk about are the southernmost thing of that type in in the world. Not to give too much away, but this episode and and the next episode kind of um are a bit of a dyad a bit of a we could just yep. call it a pair joe a you pair. Don't even think it's so so so, so, yeah. so austin powers ish yeah 
I think we're going as, as far south as we've ever gone in this episode, and then in the next episode we're going as far north as we've ever gone. Yes, so, um, so we're, we're going to kind of, yeah, we're going to encompass the entire world in, in this. Um, and yeah, so, we're going to yeah, have quite so the balloon journey. It's nice up. to have the southernmost train, lighthouse, indigenous population, museum of any type, probably probably the southernmost genocide, the southernmost uh, invasive species destroying the ecosystem. It's just the southernmost everything. Uh, good, good and bad. For and sure. Bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to a couple of cameos. One uh, in my first section from uh, Charles Darwin, which many people may recognize oh, the yeah. name of the Beagle as the ship that he sailed mm-hmm. on, and the other one in my second section from uh, John Paul II, the Pope. Sorry, what? Um, <laughs> yeah, there is a there's some fairly famous people cameo in this episode, right. and um, also no. looking forward to not one but two flag talks. Uh, okay. So that'll be that'll That's be pretty fun. Flags uh, talk. Flags talks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, how about you kick us off with some early history? Yeah. So, I probably should have uh, read a bit more about the the geology of the place. It's no, a raggedy you looking. Have. It's, it is agree. We have way too much in the sure. notes already. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a very raggedy looking archipelago, um, reminiscent of a kind of a Scandinavian type of. Mm you know, inlets sure. and fjords. We don't always say this, but it might be useful for people to take a look at uh, the map, which will be in your show notes. Yeah, it might be, um, but I'm not sure how much it helped me. It's just the... No, but the, I think the geography plays, particularly in the modern day, mm. uh, plays quite a significant role. So, um, you know, the map is available in your show notes. So yeah. if you want to take a look at and get an idea of kind of the place that we're talking about and, and kind of the way it's laid out. But um, but it's really yeah. the broken end of the South American continent. And it, it's, it, you know, when you look at a map of South America, you think it kind of just goes all the way down to a point. But the, the bottom couple of degrees are very, very jagged. And there's, there's straits going through them, straight to Magellan, yep. the Beagle Channel, that were used to circumnavigate the the American continent um, at later points. Basically, it, it's a product of the Andes, the same process that forms the Andes with the, the pushing, the subduction of one tectonic plate and another one being pushed up. So some of the some of the geography is from kind of mountain type land, but there was also a lot of glaciers around here uh, up until the end of the last ice age. And so it is towards the end or, or, or just after the end of the um the last ice age at the in the early Holocene, as as they call it, when the first humans are thought to have gotten to Tierra del Fuego. So re- really, quite early on, uh, really mm. as, as soon as as soon as they could, people are resourceful that way. Um, so they reckon about eight thousand BC, so about ten thousand years ago, the first humans would have migrated from Patagonia, which is the the bit of now Argentina north of here and it's suspected they were probably driven south by enemies and competition for resources as is so often the case with human migration they would have either been able to cross a a land bridge to the main island as as the Darwin ice sheet retreated and sea levels were still about 20 or 60 meters below present but there may may also have been Either a land bridge or, or actually on the on the glaciers. That's you know we can't know for sure, and I, I don't think I found a conclusive answer there. But there was a way across from mainland South America. Broadly speaking, the northern half of the island was was kind of open vegetation, and the southern half was 
was beech forests, quite dense beech forests. And this mm. is kind of the, the main island, the Isla Grande of Tierra del Fuego. I think, I think uh, the, uh, the the still the southern half, I believe, is, is mostly dominated by beech forests. I think that's where mm-hmm. uh, Tierra del Fuego National Park is today, right? I think that's correct. Yeah, there's definitely still yeah. a lot of forest. Mm. In terms of... Uh, ability to feed yourself i mean a place is rich is rich in mollusks and sea mammals and birds and these lovely creatures called uh, guanacos which are um kind of like kind of goat-sized llamas would that be yeah i'm looking at them now actually uh they look kind of like a cross between sort of a goat a deer and a llama yeah almost um yeah pretty pretty cool looking animals i think I pretty say. tasty as well based on um based on archaeology so. there was also some foxes as well um so uh, there's the possibility that human settlement there wasn't continuous there are kind of gaps in the record but i don't think it's particularly clear about whether there were groups arrived died out were replaced in the museo del fin del mundo which is the museum at the end of the world in Nusuaia, they have um you know arrowheads and harpoons and scrapers and bolas do you remember we had bolas in uruguay these kind of mm. stones on a on a leather thong that you would throw to trip up a guanaco, oh, wow. presumably. Uh, oh, so cool. they were they were a part of the culture, um, but seemed to have vanished. Uh, I, I came across that that they were popular initially as people They're moved out. They're not the only of, things, Joe. Hmm? Yeah. They're not the only things to have vanished, They were popular as people moved out of Patagonia and then became less important to the continued life there. Um, there's a distinction between some, there were maritime tribes who were canoe-using hunter-gatherers. Okay. They would have hunted for you know fish and, and sea fish. And they would have eaten whales, but probably not whaled. You know, beached whales were like a, you know, a, a bonanza oh, okay. when they happened. Wow. And then the, so they would be the ancestors of the, the Yagan or Yamana people and the Ala Kalufa or Kawasakar people, probably. Um, and then there were, and, and it's thought that they were probably the earliest settlers. They kind of made it pretty far south. Sure. And then further north, the um, there were sort of inland-based hunters who are the ancestors of the Selknam or Ona people and the to, to Welches or Aoekenk people who would be later tribes encountered by the Europeans. Uh, most of those names, of course, mean people yeah. in their language because that's what most tribal names mean. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're not particularly helpful and they're probably not what they call themselves. Um, so w- an interesting thing that was observed by by early early external visitors was that they didn't really wear a lot of clothing for people who lived. Yeah, in a, I heard this too, which is very curious. Climate, like the Faroe Islands. Yeah, like I think temperatures range somewhere between sort of zero to 12 degrees mm-hmm. like in that in, in that kind of area yeah it doesn't seem to get below zero no all it doesn't the time typically get... it's, it's not it's no. not icy but it just it would snow and it would be rainy and, and it's cold chilly. like every every video or uh, like any pictures i've seen of like modern day people there they're all like huddled up in jackets and stuff mm-hmm. so it seems pretty unusual that like you know early people would just walk around naked yeah and, <laughs> um, it, and it, it, it completely bewildered the europeans when they yeah met them. so as i said they would have worn they would have worn capes and stuff um and they would have done a lot of body adornment with um with with painting and so on that i'll come back to mm-hmm. later because we obviously don't know what yeah. prehistoric people did sure. in that regard they didn't write or keep any record of it 
but the cultures that descended from these people did use a lot of body painting uh, so they probably wouldn't have considered themselves to be naked as much as yeah. just didn't see clothing of all but parts the, of the body as mandatory but it's just weird because like y- you would think that you would feel it i mean like what you're describing is essentially irish winter yeah and you, you don't yeah. you don't want to be naked in an irish winter it's it's not flattering you definitely do it's not, not. Comfortable. so a few things that they did do um, was they would apply blubber to their skin, which is something we saw in, ah. in Tasmania as well. If you remember, there's, right. there's a few places where that was a solution to, you know, you're like, the, the sea lions don't get cold. Yeah, Why yeah, Why not? Yeah. They wear a coat of blubber. So, all right. There were reports from, I assume, early 20th century medics about, uh, uh, there was some Chilean researcher claimed that that most Fuegans had an average body temperature of a degree hotter than oh. the average European. And so there is some discussion about maybe they developed a higher metabolism to yeah. to keep themselves warm, which, you know, having thousands of years to adapt to an environment doesn't yeah. seem... I just want to say, actually, Joe, just that, that term that you just used, Fuegans, um, mm. it's probably a term that we're going to use, you know, uh, peppered throughout this this, yeah. um, this episode, but it, it it's generally just a catch-all term, right, for the... For the various different native tribes. Yeah, it's not a particularly useful term in terms of what no. it says about the people. It's coming from Spanish. Like, it's not. Yeah. It is very much people not like fire. Yeah. But um, just, yeah, just just as, as, as a primer for the listeners, I guess. Mm-hmm. It, because there are various different tribes, which you've already described, Joe, that, that have various different uh, traditions and cultures and, and probably languages as well. But Yeah, uh, definitely. Unrelated just, If you hear Fuegans, it's just a catch-all term to refer to these different groups that live in this, uh, that were living in this region. Yeah. And the fires you mentioned are, are important. It's called the land of fire. I mean, you're going to, you're going to mm. go into why, but fire was a key tool in not being cold. And mm. um, to, to quote a recent um, Amazon Prime adaptation of a best selling book, there were little fires everywhere. Oh, dear God. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> so oh, they would, they would set, they would have fires burning on their canoes. They would have fires that they huddled around constantly. So, they, there was always fire and so seen from a boat the land looked like a land of fire um okay so that that's a kind of a key a key bit of technology that um you know why do you need clothes if you have a big fire uh so seems weird to me but okay the um the Baya Wulaya dome middens on uh, Isla Navarino or Wula as it was called in the native language that's the the island opposite um, the capital of the Argentinian bit of Tierra del Fuego, Ushuaia. It is a really important archaeological site where there's still maintained middens. We talked before about like you get a ring of basic sea shells around the outside of where a hut used to be. Right. Which is where all the waste would have been thrown and it kind of builds up as an extra wall and protection against the wind yep. over time. So uh, there's shells and charcoal. There's also fish trap walls preserved in the channels where like tides would fill up behind the wall and then the fish would get trapped and hunted right. that way. And because there's been so little post-European conquest visitors to this island, thus they're still there, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, and the museum around that, the Dome Midden site, is apparently the southernmost museum of any type in the world. It's oh, on privately boy. owned land and you have to ring up a few weeks in advance to get the key. But um, it, not, it exists. Not great placement for him museum then (laughs) (laughs) you can go visit so there seems to have been significant demographic expansion in the last two millennia um, based on 
density of settlements and so on. Both of the groupings, so we're mostly going to talk about the Yagan and the Selknam. So the Yagan were the coastal people, the biggest tribe of coastal people. And they they were nomads and hunter-gatherers, canoes, sea fish, uh, seafood. And the, the women dove to collect shellfish while the men hunted sea lions. Seems to be the, okay. the division of labor. Um, okay. And the Selknam tended to be more inland and they hunted guanacos and so on. And they were also nomadic. And... There is evidence of its continued interaction with Patagonia because mm-hmm. some obsidian um, that's been found around Tierra del Fuego was mined 600 kilometers north of the Straits of Magellan, okay. turning up at various archaeological sites. Um, as I said, bolas stopped being used around 500 AD, well, in Tierra del Fuego, the, the, those hunting tools. Um, but the obsidian was was being imported. So there was trade. These weren't isolated people. They were traveling and they were trading uh, as they saw fit for the needs of technology. So uh, it seems that there was no, very little overlap between seafaring hunters and non-seafaring hunters. And even later years when they were escaping from missions and stuff, the, the non-seafaring tribes are, were really reluctant to use canoes and rafts to escape without oh, wow. help. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's like Grande, like we mentioned in the in the introduction, is like a huge island i think i read somewhere it's like the 30th largest island in the world and the oh, wow. largest island in south america so like it doesn't surprise me that there are inland groups and and coastal groups and we we were discussing this before we started recording we, we can't find a good number that about how many people were living here yeah before uh, i hand over to mark to talk about um european contact but it's there were many thousands um in the 1800s, there were definitely about six to 7,000 um, non-Europeans um, kind of guesstimated by the colonial people moving in at that point. So it, it's reasonable to suspect that there were there were maybe up to 10,000 people living here. Um, yeah. I, I think I read that number somewhere in the context of it was a really significant number and now look yeah. how, look what happened. Yes. Not, not, not too you know and i i I didn't i didn't dive too much into the the kind of ethnography and and the mythology but definitely uh, there's some stuff about hummingbirds being important um in in the mythology oh Um, wow that's rather and lots of legends with with kind of folk heroes you know going off and doing things interacting with the elements and the gods and so on uh and there was also elements of shamanism in their Hmm. in their culture but it's kind of always hard to pin down what was there before it was being written down by Europeans. Mm, sure. For sure. So um, how did Europeans F it all up, Mark? Oh, oh boy. <laughs> boy, did we. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the Strait of Magellan, Magellan, Ferdinand Magellan, the, the guy. Ferdinand Magellan is one of our tiers on patreon i think <laughs> true, true enough like he yeah you know it's it's this guy um yeah but i will say so i, I was re- reading a little bit about his kind of um earlier parts of his expedition and i knew that it wasn't as they say oh plain sailing <laughs> anyway uh, but um I, I knew there was like mutinies and stuff like that but i, I didn't really i guess know the details so uh let, let me know if if you knew this 
So Magellan, like this is pretty early in the voyage. He's going going around the world. He's left, you know, Europe. He's only in 80 days. No, Um, very, very long time. But he's only gotten as far as like South America. So still a lot of the world to go. Um, and he set out from Spain. Thank you. I yeah, say. yeah, yeah, it was Spain. Yeah, sorry. He's 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 another one of these Portuguese guys flying under a Spanish flag. Yes, but yes. um, so okay, he lost one ship to a storm, and Ooh. um, he executed one of his sailors for sodomy. Um, oh my! Yeah. Do you, do you know how they executed him? Mm. Keel hauling. Yeah. Strangulation. They just ah, strangled yeah. him. Um, and yeah, again, this was like before they even got to Brazil. Um, so, so this caused a, a small mutiny on his boat uh, and he was able to kind of put that down. And then a little bit later on, there was a much, much bigger mutiny. Uh, they were kind of now down the coast of Argentina. Uh, and he eventually, I, I don't know the right tense to use, but drew and quartered the ringleaders. <laughs> So, oh my. like, it was a wow. really intense time. He was, like, strangling people to death and ripping people apart. And So a strict, a strict captain then? Well, I mean, yes, I guess. I mean, at the time, sodomy was... Call him a know, disciplinarian. ...was seen as, Jeez. you know, that execution was the punishment for it. But, you know, yep. they, they were also at sea. And, you know, apparently it, it wasn't unheard of. Anyway, that's, that's kind of... That was the tone of things when they, when they rock up. Um, they, they continue south and eventually were driven into a bay by storm. Um, some of their ships were driven far into that bay. Uh, and then they realized that the bay didn't really have a back to it and actually mm. that it was a channel and the water never turned fresh, no matter how far up the channel they went. Yeah. Um, and that it, this it, is it, another place we should look at the map. It does look like a bay on the Atlantic side. Yeah. yeah. And then it gets a lot hairier, I'd say, as they go further in. Would that be... Well, I mean, yes, um, but they, they also realized that it was extremely deep and consistently so. So then they, they kind of realized that it's, it's salty, it's deep. Hold on a second. We might be able to, to sail through this thing. So, Rather than going hundreds of kilometers further south. Exactly. Around the rocky, to go around Cape shores of... Yeah. So they sent out uh, scouts to try to find their way through. Uh, and they kind of gave up hope on ever seeing those guys again because they were gone so long. But eventually, two days later, they, they turned up firing their cannons in celebration and they were all very, very happy indeed. Uh, a quote, and I believe this is from the diary of Antonio Pigafetta, who's the kind of the official um, you know, journal keeper of the expedition. They told us that they had found the Cape and the sea great and wide at the joy which the Captain General had at this, the Captain General being Magellan. He began to cry and he gave the name Cape of Desire. While in the Straits, the San Antonio, which was one of the ships, mutinied and, and they forced their captain to turn around apparently this was down to uh, a bitterness by the kind of uh, a group of officers on that ship that um magellan had been put in 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 charge of the expedition they were spanish themselves and apparently they had made a pitch to to the king and queen that they would they would be the ones to do it so they were they were pretty pissed off by the whole thing and i guess on the verge of magellan's you know greatest success they were like Nah, we're, we're not hanging around watching him gloat, weeping with joy. Um, right. So uh, here's just another account of, of, of them kind of sailing through the, the channel. We found that every half league a good port and place for anchoring, good waters, wood, all cedar, and fish like sardines. 
misiglioni, which I don't know what that is, and a very sweet herb named apio. Uh, translation apparently for that is celery. Uh, I think there is not in the world a more beautiful country. Um, I've never heard anyone wow. so excited so, about celery before. They, well, I think they, they weren't eating very nice stuff at that point. And actually... Um, and they continue to not eat nice stuff. They were eating celery. <laughs> so I, I I did wonder... This on a celery year, Joe. Wow. I, I did wonder whether they didn't expect this to be the hill I died on. but uh. I, I did wonder whether their positive memories were coloured by their, their future expedition. So I read on about a couple of lines and came to this following line. We only ate old biscuit reduced to powder and full of grubs and stinking from the dirt which the rats had made on it when eating the good biscuit. And we drank water that was yellow and stinking. We also ate the oxide. So uh, thing, th- right. things things took a turn for the worse pretty much as you soon as they did. some celery yeah, if that okay, was, uh, maybe celery that was has option. something going for it in that yeah. context. Uh, anyway, so, so M- Magellan discovers it as far as you know Europeans are concerned. Um, and that was in kind of 1520. And, then, and he gives it the name Tierra del Fuego, and, right? And he calls it Tierra del Fuego based on the kind of the, yeah. the, the smoke and the fires and so on. That well, he saw. What I read was, yeah. was he, he thought, you know, he thought that like the natives were coming to get them kind of thing. He thought, oh, they've lit war fires to intimidate us. I, I, I saw that, but I, I didn't read that in, in the in the Pigafetta diary. But oh, okay. I mean... It, there were other people writing things down, so it might have just yeah, been... Yeah, no, that's, or even that's definitely the sort of thing you read in, in sort of articles talking yeah. about where it got its name. But, you know, in reality, people were just cooking their dinner and staying warm. Exactly. Maybe that was maybe that was, was his excuse when he got back. They would they you know this the the Spanish crown would ask him why didn't you land and explore this place? He was like, oh, there was a lot of fires. It looked very intimidating. I think I think they were going to attack us. So. Uh, they're, they're pretty the pretty mean. Uh, yeah. Enormous robots. Uh, <laughs> mouth, mouth filled with teeth. Um, yeah. So in 1526, uh, that's kind of the next voyage we encounter is Garcia Joffre de Loaiza. Loaiza? Eh, he's dead. He's not going to write me. Um, anyway, so he was the second to navigate. days podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> he was the second to navigate the straits. And he was the first to discover that Tierra del Fuego itself was an island. Uh, Magellan didn't actually, didn't realize that. And then in 1553, uh, Francisco de Ulloa, he was the first to sail the straits from the west, from the other direction. Um, and then we have a guy called Juan Ladrillero. Uh, he was the first to go over and back. Uh, so he went through the straits and went back the other direction uh, between 1557 and 1558. Oh. So here's where things start to get a little bit more tasty. Uh, in 1578, um, n- no longer just kind of, I guess, doing the strait as, as its own cool stunt. Uh, 1578, Francis Drake crossed the strait uh, and then proceeded to maraud up the west coast of South America, uh, stealing everything that wasn't literally nailed down, uh, raiding sites in what would become modern day Chile, Peru, and I think also Mexico. Um, and That's in order to block, of... it's a lot of stuff. He stole a lot of stuff. Um, in order to block his way back um, and to block the way through of any other, you know, enemies of Spain, a guy called Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa, he led two ships to the Strait of Magellan to see if they could if they could block him, if they could build fortifications or, or what have you. Um, anyway, didn't didn't really work out too well. He came back in 1584 uh, to found two colonies to try to kind of build it up so that they wouldn't be taken advantage of in the same way again. Uh, He returned to the colonies four years later and found everyone had starved to death. Uh, So the the, the settlement didn't really work out for the Spanish. 
Um, just another mention about... It's very uh, chilly. Uh, and, and not great for farming, I wouldn't have imagined either. It's just like, you know, the Spanish are going mm. down there with, you know, I assume tomatoes and olives and so on. <laughs> like, it's, it's just not the right vibe. Uh, uh, anyway, so Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa, just a mention of him because his life is super, super interesting. He would be captured by Walter Raleigh and brought personally to Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, they spoke one-to-one in Latin, apparently. Um, and she sent with him okay. a letter of peace to Spain. Now, he was on his way to Spain with this letter of peace, uh, only to be captured by French Huguenots on his way home. Oh, and God. by the time he was actually released, the Spanish Armada had already been launched and, oh. and dashed by Francis Drake and his tiny boats. So the English and Spanish would be locked into a death spiral for centuries, all the way up until the Brits discovered Paella in 1992. So it's... Uh, Just because this guy was captured by the French. Because, yeah, because this guy uh, had many, many, you know, insane accidents with, with lots of historical folk. But, um, right. yeah. Anyway, so... It's uh, a who's who of, of uh, the exploration age. Uh, mm. Moving <clears throat> on to the 17th century, we have uh, Willem Schutten and Jacob Lemaire, uh, they discovered who, and named who were, Cape... Who were, um, Italians, right? Uh, Dutch, I believe. Yes. Uh, uh, a, a pair, <laughs> that, that a pair of filthy Dutchmen. We can assume they're filthy because they're in the past. Um, anyway. Not <laughs> <laughs> that old Dutchmen are filthy. Otherwise, I would just say Dutchmen and assume that you knew that they were filthy. Um, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh. Uh, Mark's, Mark's views do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast. Some, some white-on-white racism here, folks. Uh, yeah. Anyway, v- v- Willem, Willem Schutten and Jacob, Jacob Lemaire, they discovered and named Cape Horn, which is named after the town of Horn in oh, the right. Netherlands, apparently. I assumed oh. it's because it looked like a horn. Yeah, I always thought that. Like yeah. No, like the, horn the, of the town of Horn, yeah. Um, and they recognize it as the southern tip of Tierra del Fuego. And um, after these two clean Dutchmen turned, turned up uh, and gave us all a cheap laugh, there's not really much exploration by Europeans for, for a very long time indeed. Kind of, give or take, 150 years. Um, I mean, people are kind of going through the channel here and there, but not, not really with any frequency. Um, the next person I'm going to mention is James Cook. Uh, here we go. 1769, his first voyage. So on December 20th, uh, he put into what he would later call on another expedition, uh, Christmas Sound, where large numbers of kelp geese were caught, uh, which they had a, a merry old time cooking and apparently Cook describes as a dainty Christmas feast. They, they went ashore and dubbed the locals they found to be, and I quote, perhaps as miserable a set of people as are this day upon the earth. Um, wow. Uh, and he All said... Right. And he, he said that after noticing that their culture focused on archery, shellfish, and avoiding hard liquor. So, you know, actually, okay, to be Sounds honest. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of there for two out of three of that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> like, it, do, it does kind of just show that... He, which, which one are you yeah, not there you, for? <laughs> you opposed to archery? Uh... <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, avoiding hard liquor. Uh, if, if I start slurring my words in the last third of this podcast, you'll know why. Um, okay. So uh, anyway, so m- maybe um, yeah, just James Cook was coming with like a really negative view of them, regardless of kind of what was happening. I, I, I remember, I think, in the previous episode, uh, having uh, a quote from James Cook 
talk i think calling an, another set of people miserable and stunted or s- something along those lines so well, he, he this seems to have been a pattern going on very yeah. much so yeah uh, cook also noticed that they weren't overly surprised to see the firearms he had with him and kind of from hmm. that they guessed a kind of similar to your point joe was that they might actually be albeit somewhat infrequently traveling to the south american mainland and they, they also seem to kind of understand, you know, how they worked and so on. So they're, they're quite familiar. Um, another, another James Cook quote, if you're, if you're ready for it. The women wear a piece of skin over their privy parts, but the men observe no such decency. James Cook is a total killjoy. He is just so boring and lame. Uh, and just, I mean, just in case, you know, you, you weren't getting a measure of, of, of the kind of people on the expedition. Uh, he had a companion with him, a guy called Joseph Banks, um, who was... You know, Joseph Banks. Not jo- Joseth Banks. We know Joseph Banks. How do we know Joseph Banks? Him several times before. Isn't yeah. he like a, um, an admiral involved in uh, the, the trial was... of the Pitcairn, the, the, the Mutiny and the Bounty? No, no, he was... Um, Joseph Banks, if it's the same Joseph Banks was the guy that initiated uh, Bly's voyage on the bounty yeah. to collect the breadfruit. He was um, oh. he was president of the Royal Geographical, Geographical Society. This yes. is the guy. This is definitely yeah. the same guy then. Yeah. yeah, okay. Anyway, yeah, that's that's who he is. Well, th- this guy that I apparently should know. <laughs> you should have, we've talked about him in previous podcasts, uh, Mark. You should recognize the name. Luke, I, I barely Let's knew see. who James Cook was. I, I <laughs> 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 so he's a kind of uh, a air fryer. Some kind of chef, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anyway, so so Joseph Banks, uh, he was collecting botanical specimens. He kind of he wandered off with his group to 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 do this, um, but he had two servants with him who it mentions were black and died of exposure to the cold. Uh, definitely feels like the kind of thing that could have been avoided, uh, but of course yeah. in the accounts it was all their own fault uh, because they were terribly irresponsible and drank all of the liquor and were falling around and it was all their own fault. So thanks, James Cook, you asshole. Just great stuff. Um, I will go on to the next voyage, 1774. James Cook, second voyage. So Cook turns up again to take on some stores and spend uh, Christmas. I mentioned Christmas Sand, that's that's where he, he hangs out. Um, a couple of more choice quotes, him describing the area. Except those little tufts of shrubbery, the whole country was a barren tack which means rock, doomed by nature to everlasting sterility. Holy God, <laughs> doomed by nature. This, um, is, this is not a good TripAdvisor review, guys. So, uh, uh, I don't know. Th- this time around, uh, he, just a couple of things he noticed again about, about the, the locals. Um, I think you mentioned this, Joe, but it, it, really, like, it, it really clocked with me that they had fires in their canoes, yeah. which is such mm. a strange thing. Like, how, how do you... How do you do that? How do you make that work? Carefully. Like, yeah, they, <laughs> very so carefully. The canoes are largely made out of wood. Yeah, uh, but they're also in, in a lot of water. Yeah, yeah, but that's not how it works, Joe. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how you turn the <laughs> it'll, fire it'll off. It'll go out. But, um, but I mean, they, they, what they guessed was that that wasn't just for heat, but it was also because it must be very hard to start a fire because everything's so wet and it rains all the time uh, that they would take a fire with them so they can kind of, you know, count uh, effectively when nice. they go to, go to, go to, go to land. Um, and also that they, they had seal skins with them, like you said, uh, but they also used them as impromptu sails, uh, was his observation. Oh, cool. 
Um, I, I, I did I did see an account of one one, one early meeting I think with a French group, which I I'm not going to go into because okay, it's not not that interesting, but that some of our idea that some of the idea that they they didn't wear any clothes come from the fact that they would hide their capes ah when they encountered Europeans because they not unreasonably thought they'd be robbed yeah so while the women always covered themselves a little bit the men were like no I'm not getting my cape I'll fold it up and hide it under a rock which I don't know like yeah. given what we know about colonialism seems reasonable they'll take the they'll take the otter skin cape that's off a, your that's back. a very yep that is a very reasonable we, we, attitude to have uh, anyway, uh, this is this is one of my my last quotes from from Cook. So you know, in, in, enjoy this one. Um, so it's 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 now literally Christmas, basically, and uh, just 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 for context. And has some joy entered his heart. Uh, and he, he he's he's you know he's he's considering um, wet weather maybe. Uh, Scrooge like he's gonna have a, a you know a, a, a come to Jesus moment and uh, and open up his heart open up his his, his ship stores uh, and then says the following they all retired before dinner as in uh, the natives who were near them and did not want to partake of our Christmas cheer indeed I believe no one invited them and for good reason <sighs> for their dirty persons and the stench they carried about them were enough to spoil the appetite of any European. And that would have been a real disappointment. Oh, wow. He is the worst. So he's not kind of, he's not kind of looking at this kind of going, wow, I get to interact with these, God. these far-flung people with a different culture and learn from them and, and maybe find some common ground. He's like, bit smelly. Yeah. And like, he, this, this, this is the 1700s. Like, they, <laughs> They were all like dying on the inside. They were like just rotting. Yes, like, but you... civilized people smell of rum and biscuits. Ah, oh, they not they, of they, shellfish. They and... Smell of syphilis and turds in this period, Joe. Like it's not. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't. They weren't fresh. Anyway, I'm I'm gonna skip a few other visitors. Uh, we've mentioned Bougainville in the past. He was the the poor yeah. man's cook or a Magellan. He was. Oh, where I think where the... did he? Oh, he he founded. Um... Bougain, Bougainville in um, in in Papua New Guinea, which is now sort of declared independence. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah. He, yeah. But we we mentioned him in Vanuatu, I think. He he's yeah. kind of like given an honorable mention in a lot of countries' histories because he was the first Frenchman to circumnavigate the world, and yeah. um, he was I think the fourteenth person to circumnavigate at this point. So it's it's a bit it's a bit old hat, Bougainville. Uh, but you know, for, for the sake of the mention, we'll, we'll throw Yawn. him a, throw him an old bone. Um, right. Anyway, so last kind of time point I'm going to visit is um, the voyage of Parker King, which was on the Beagle. But this is not really kind of the Beagle voyage; it's kind of a Beagle voyage. Um, so he he was there really to do a, a major survey. Uh, of the coast of South America and taking the Beagle uh, made well, famous was that his superior officer on the ship Miss, Mr. Beagle no a major survey oh dear <laughs> <laughs> uh, outranked by general survey um, so the voyage of Parker King um, he was conducting a major survey of South America and uh, the, the Beagle was was in amongst his his uh, group of ships um, mm. but it was under the command of a guy called Pringle Stokes 
who very depressingly uh, killed himself. He himself actually was suffering from a very deep depression, but he killed himself at Cape Famine. Um, and sub- Yeah, I read quite a bit about this, yeah. Uh, um, s- subsequently, this kind of experience haunted a guy called Robert Fitzroy, who, who decided to, to bring on a, a, a much cheerier type of character to kind of keep him from, from uh, falling to the same kind of depression. He, he knew that he was, he was rather prone to, to fits of depression. So he, he picked a guy called Charles Darwin. Uh, and mm. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there. And, and, and however you look. Sure. Uh, shall we take a quick break? Sure. Yeah. Yes, I think things are evolving in a nice at a nice oh, pace. Come on. What's wrong with you? Dear God Almighty. Hey listeners, uh, just a very quick message here to say that we hope you're keeping safe out there these days. Uh, so many of you have recently decided to help us out over on Patreon, and while we're always grateful, we know that many of you will have bigger things going on right now, so be sure to always look after yourself first. However, if you do want to donate to the show, you can do so at the link in the show notes or by going to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. This month, our new backers include fellow history and geography nerds Brad Wilgus, Andrea Philhadu, Pavel Aronin, Teddy Bear Tribunal, Sean Hurley, Fiona Flavin, and Oshin Brennan. As I record this, we're putting the final touches on one of our last episodes of season four, and there's no way we could have gotten this far without the generous backing of all of our patrons. So thank you all so much. But for now, we'll get you back to your regularly scheduled programming. Take care out there. Yeah, as you mentioned, Mark uh, Pringle Stokes. Yeah, he he um, shot himself at uh, Cape Famine. I, I actually looked it up because I I'd never really come across any um, like in all the kind of historical accounts and different people that we've 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 talked about previously. There's particularly with explorers, there seems there doesn't seem to have many of them that committed suicide like this. Mm. And there's actually a, a you know it's kind of morbid, but there's a Wikipedia page for explorers who committed suicide and there's only oh like God. 12 or 13 listed on it and um strangely enough the guy that takes over the beagle is also on there oh um, uh, fitzroy yes now really yes, but not oh, wow. not until much oh, no. later in life but yeah he's he oh, is God. the next person to sail the beagle to tierra del fuego with as you mentioned um darwin in tow yeah so in august 1828 uh stokes commits suicide he shoots himself uh and then the beagle returns north uh to rio de janeiro for repairs and that's where fitzroy takes over the beagle and fitzroy returns the following winter to tierra del fuego and begins to encounter native people he encounters like many of these different tribes you know distinct different groups and after a a small boat was stolen from the beagle fitzroy ended up uh, capturing a handful of of fuegans i think they were um yagans uh, yes they were they were so along the beagle channel would be where the yakan yeah people are more concentrated and although it wasn't his uh his kind of mission's objective he decides to quote-unquote civilize these savages uh, and decides to bring them back to to england with him i think it was a collective punishment thing it's like your people are responsible for the crimes of anyone else that's the same color as you okay 
but he takes four people and they give him very strange English names. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first was a grown man called uh, who they named York uh, Minster. It's uh, a tube station, right? Is York, York is it a tube no, station? York, it's 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 nothing really. I mean, like it's it's probably in York. It'd be my guess. These, are, these just seem to be random collections of English words, yeah. to be honest. They're just two English words mashed together. There's, there's a pie minster. Um, these are her pies. That's a different thing. Uh, um, the second one, a girl was called Fuega Basket. Which um, is, excuse me. Just a terrible name. Yep. The, th- uh, the third one was a young boy called who they called Jemmy Button. And the fourth was a, another boy called Boat Memory. Yeah, and uh, my understanding is that Boat Memory died uh, shortly after they, they were captured. Yeah, no, I, Bo- I think Boat Memory died in the UK, but before before they could be displayed. Yeah. I guess I I just like to say that 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 when I saw the name Boat Memory, I had a, a flashback to a play I saw as a teenager. So the the National Theatre in London has an annual sort of youth theatre competition, and they, they had one of the scripts that lots of Lots of theatre groups around Ireland, the UK, performed hmm. probably twenty years ago. Now, uh, it was called Boat Memory. It was kind of a uh, the play was called sad, Boat Memory. Yeah, it was quite a sad okay. version of this story of the people being abducted and turned into props, playthings. I don't want to see the happy yeah. version of the story, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> no. But when, when yeah. you guys mentioned Boat Memory, we were talking about it at the start of the episode. Uh, I assumed it was like the mental equivalent of sea legs. Like, I got no. that boat memory. I'm not going to, you know. No, afraid not. Um, so, okay. yeah, boat, boat memory was the first of the party to die uh, shortly after they returned to the UK. Um, the rest of them were housed and tutored in English and Christian virtues. Uh, and a few months later were presented to King William IV and Queen Adelaide in the summer of 1831. Okay. So I have a quote here from um, a book that I read extensively uh, for this podcast called The Uttermost Part of the Earth by mm-hmm. a guy called Lucas Bridges, whose uh, father lived in Tierra del Fuego for a while, and he also lived there. Yeah, uh, I think, I believe, I think, for, for I think Lucas well. was born there and yeah. learned Yagan and oh, wow. spoke it fluently. And uh, I mean, there were missionaries who actually wanted to know the people, but they were... yeah. But he he talks about some of the rumors that had been spread about um, about people from uh, Tierra del Fuego. So his quote is: um, "The rumor had been spread that these children belonged to a race of cannibals, oh. and details of horrible orgies to which they were addicted were recounted in England. Mm. The Fuegans lived, it was said, practically naked in their wretched bark canoes, eating seal, birds, and fish when not eating one another." Um, now. I couldn't find any evidence and I, I couldn't find any historical accounts of cannibalism, but this was, um, you know, you can imagine uh, uh, when these people were displayed in England, they were, they were sort of, you know, it, it made the story all the more enticing to say, these are cannibals and savages yeah. who've been civilized and dressed up in uh, Western I'd imagine and... the reason you couldn't, you couldn't find any records of it is it probably wasn't ever exactly. true. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. in the interest of, you know, decolonizing history, um, we do know the real names of of the three people who didn't die of smallpox. York Minster's real name was El, El Leparu. Jemmy Button's real name was Oron Delico. And Fuega Basket's real name was Yok Kushti. The, okay. Yeah, so. I saw, I, I mean, I, I don't know the exact kind of, you know, way, but like I read it as Oron Delico. But it's it's such a nice name. <laughs> it's a really, like, it's a really cool name. Uh, and it's mentioned like if you kind of google that like there's a lot of stuff out there about 
Orandelico and kind of his his story and so I think his is probably the best documented of all of them. Yeah, uh, and he's going to pop up a few times. But um, yeah, in in, in June 1831, then Fitzroy was reappointed commander of the Beagle. Uh, clearly done a, a you know what was considered to be a good job the first time around. And uh, as you mentioned, Mark, because uh, he he himself was prone to fits of de- depression. Uh, he requested that a young gentleman of scientific repute be found to accompany him and uh, keep him from becoming lonely and depressed. Would you love you could just have a pet scientist come with you and holiday? Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, man, going off exploring, but can we, can we just bring a, you know, just some intelligent cool. guy for me to talk yeah, to? Some cool cat. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so yeah, as you as you mentioned, Mark uh, Charles Darwin uh, was the guy who we decided to bring with him. And they initially got on well, but uh, they would come to clash over a number of subjects, most notably slavery, which uh, I believe <gasps> Darwin was opposed to. He was an abolitionist, um, yes. So, I didn't know that. So, yeah, hoping that um, they'd be able to replant the Fuegans that they'd captured, they decided to bring them back to Tierra del Fuego, now replant. civilized, and, and oh, assumed God. they would spread the good word and, and, and you know, kind of... Uh, help to to sort of spread Western values and Christian values and this sort of thing. To cure them of all those orgies they were addicted to. Oh, but they've been cured, Mark. Uh, They've been cured. Yep. uh, And once they were released back at Tierra del Fuego, they pretty much just fled or just rapidly reverted back to their old ways of life. So I have a quote here from uh, Charles Darwin's uh, The Voyage of the Beagle. So he says he describes Tierra del Fuego as a, a mountainous land, partly submerged in the sea, so deep that inlets and bays occupy the place where the valley should exist. Ah. The mountainsides, except on the exposed western coast, are covered from the water's edge upward by one great forest. The trees reach to an elevation of between 1,000 and 1,500 feet and are succeeded by a band of peat with minute alpine plants. To find an acre of, of level land in any part of the country is most rare. Um... <laughs> Even within the forest, the ground is concealed by a mass of slowly putrefying vegetable matter, which, from being soaked with water, yields to the foot. So, oh, wow. Honestly, most of the most of the people that are here are not, you know, are not particularly complimentary. Even though, from what I can see, it looks like a very nice place to to visit. Um, but mm. yeah, most of the accounts that we're seeing, the historical accounts here, are not. No, uh, nobody not, mentions not the penguins. That's true as well. There's yeah, penguins. I, I rarely see penguins mentioned. Yeah, I, I've seen a video from from. Uh, People I know have visited of just penguins wandering around on the beach. Looks class. They're yeah. so cute. <laughs> a good news story. We we kind of need. But one. I just think I would be like, yeah, it's a bit grim and it's very mountainous, but there's penguins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't and love they're penguins? adorable, and they make yeah. up for. But I thought you would you think know. they would be a, a novel, a relatively notable thing. Sure. Uh. So, um, Jemmy Button or Orandelico uh, seemingly was offered passage back to England by uh, Fitzroy after after they'd completed their their survey of Tierra del Fuego, and he declined. I said, "No, I'm good. I'll uh, I'll stay here. Right. I'm fine here. I love um, not being kidnapped. It's my favorite." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, in 1843, the Chilean government sent an expedition to this region to build a fort and establish a permanent settlement on the so- on the shores of the Strait of Magellan, mm. uh, on the western side of the strait, so not on Isla Grande. Mm. 21 people under the command of John Williams Wilson of the Chilean Navy. Uh, it doesn't sound particularly Chilean, no. but um, yeah, they they founded a small settlement on the 21st of September, 1843. Okay. That settlement was later established as a penal colony mm. uh, and basically military personnel with problematic behavior were sent there. 
very slowly populated with prisoners, but uh, in November 1851, mutineers took control of the colony and the Navy had to go in with two vessels to recapture it. Wow. Uh, and this is what would eventually go on to become Punta Arenas, which is the largest city, I believe. Um, I don't know if you can even really call it a city. because Largest settlement in the Chilean. Largest settlement on the Chilean side. The Chilean yeah. side of yeah, it vies today with Ushuaia for um, title of the world's southernmost city. Um, but Punta Arenas, I believe, is not, you know, technically class- classified as a city because there's only about 5,000 people that live there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it means Sandy Point, I think, or Sand Point. And it was mm. a strategy. So, like, this was kind of a no man's land at this point, other than all the, you know, indigenous people who live there. Yeah. But, you know, Europeans didn't consider them to count. So no country had a claim on it. And building penal colonies was a strategy. Australia is another example. Mm. Tasmania. Um, yep. Of kind of going, how do we get people to go to a place no one wants to go to? Oh, we the make people em. we can tell where to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you build a city in, in inverted commas, and then you can point to it 50 years later and go, but we've, we've, we've had a city here for 50 years. Full Even of it happy was built by uh, prisoners. Happy. Yeah, Jesus. It was also around the same time that the first European settlements uh, on Isla Grande came to be formed. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, by an 1856 missionary party uh, led by a guy called Reverend Despard, who uh, helped to build the first church on Isla Grande. He persuaded a bunch of Fuegans, including Arendelico or Jemmy Button to uh, visit Cranmer Station on the Falkland Islands with him in 1858. Oh, yes, and, that, and that's quite nearby. Yes, the Falkland Islands, we should mention, are, are, are relatively nearby. Relatively. And yeah. um, there were multiple disagreements during this visit, and the natives that uh, this guy had brought with him demanded to be returned home. I like these guys. <laughs> so in October 1859, a British crew in a ship called the Allen Gardner, uh, owned by the Missionary Society, departed Keppel Island to return the natives to uh, Tierra del Fuego. However, after further disagreements on a very rough journey, the entire crew reached the shore. But uh, the Yagan men were soon thereafter falsely accused of having stolen things from the crew. And Orindelico, or Jemmy Button, and others then set upon the crew and clubbed them to death during a mass service in November in 1859. uh, Basically taking taking their revenge, yeah. Uh, In 1863... An Anglican missionary called Waite Sterling visited Tierra del Fuego and re-established uh, contact with uh, Orindelico and relations with the Yagan then began to improve from that point forward. In 1869, after many years spent assimilating among the native population, a more formal settlement was begun at Ushuaia. And uh, under Waite Sterling, the British South American Mission Society Patagonia Mission which is a, a bit of a mouthful. It was an Anglican mission, was founded in southern Tierra del Fuego in 1869. And on the other side of the strait, uh, in 1867, the Chilean government issued a decree uh, offering land grants in an effort to get Chileans or foreigners to set, settle around uh, Punta Arenas because they were having trouble, uh, like you mentioned, Joe, <laughs> uh, growing that colony. But this, this this promise of land grants basically helped to establish a number of uh, sheep farms in the region, particularly uh, from, I believe, uh, British settlers, but also Croatians in the early days, which was um, probably an interesting subset. I, I don't have much on them. but Yeah, um, and it, it doesn't really come in here, but the, the, I've, I've always found it fascinating. There's a, there's a Welsh, a whole Welsh community in Patagonia that, that mm, speak really? Welsh, yeah. um, which is further north, but, but similar time periods. There was a sheep farming boom in Patagonia as they realized this kind of steppy climate was 
not unsuited to sheep and welsh people and who has sheep the the welsh gamballing up the hills shearing Mm -hmm. each other classic welsh um so yeah that kind of brings us to um the next major development something you're going to talk about joe maybe the discovery of gold gold yeah no there's there's two two big things that kind of influenced the late 19th century in Terra del Fuego were, were mm. sheep farming and uh, and a gold rush. And they obviously did not have positive effects for the native population. And no. They... Two big things bringing in people from outside who, yeah. as we've seen, are not particularly sympathetic to the native population. Yeah, and, and we've already met one Yagan person who died of smallpox. Um, and he won't be the last because mm. foreign diseases were you know you develop immunity over time in a population and these people had never seen a lot of european diseases so but yeah there's a few kind of themes running through this period so i'm going to bring us up to the mid 20th century um in my section and basically we have chile and argentina both trying to maintain some aspect of control of this area but neither really having it at the beginning um, and Chile quite keen on controlling the Straits of Magellan okay. so that they would have access to the Atlantic. Right. Because Chile is a, you know, is a Pacific country yeah. and they would have done most of their trade with Europe, not with, I don't know, um, Vanuatu. Palau or Micronesia. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there, there wasn't really... Yeah, so they... Um, had a big interest in keeping the straits. That's what. That's why Punta Arenas on, on the Straits of Magellan was a, a key strategic choice. But Argentina had some interest in in maintaining South Atlantic um, possessions. As as we discussed, the the Falklands are not a million miles away, or Las Malvinas Ooh, from the hey. Argentinian point of view. Oh my! Oh, political. Ooh. And <laughs> at some point. Both countries would claim bits of Antarctica from their, you know, their proximity their vantage in inverted point. commas. Yeah. So, you know, the, you can never have too many islands. I can see Antarctica teams. from my house. Anyway. <laughs> so um, you kind of mentioned this a little bit already, but, but in 1870, an Anglican mission was for, founded in, in Ushuaia. And mm. um, the man you mentioned, uh, Thomas Bridges, the, the, the missionary, whose son wrote that that book the the, oh, the right. uttermost uttermost part of the earth i think it's called and yeah. if you yeah if you're interested in in this region the whole text is available we'll link it in the show notes and yeah it's a it's a really interesting account i i, I found it very readable to be honest but quite there's way too much detail in there for us <laughs> to be putting in this podcast like, yeah chapter three that time i set up a sheep farm up around somewhere like I, <laughs> yes yes how much so, are you gonna tell me about sheep farming he tells you a lot yes so his father, uh, Reverend Thomas Bridges, had the first house that was built in Iswaya. He had it assembled in the Falkland Islands, a three-room house, and then shipped over. What? Oh wow! Are you even saying what? <laughs> well, how are you going to build a house? And how are you going to ship a house, Joe? On a yeah. ship. Okay, well that part I guess tracks, but um, so it had one room for the Bridges family. A second was for a, a, a Yamana married couple or a Yagan married couple. Who they had, who'd converted to Christianity, okay, and uh, the third served as a chapel, so a little house for um, this new mission. 
Bridges lived among the Agam people. He learned the language fluently and preached to them. Uh, and he compiled a 30,000 word dictionary. I didn't really follow up on this, but apparently that dictionary had a bit of a, a bit of an adventure making its way back to publication in the UK. As, as a general rule, it would be fair to say the, the, the European uh, native interactions along the Beagle Channel with the Agam people were were more cordial than further north, as as I'll as I'll get into with the Southland people. Um but you know the the, the long term effects were probably no less disastrous. It just is a bit more sympathetic, I suppose, but you still had, you know, outbreaks of typhus and and measles and smallpox ripping through yeah. the community that just didn't need to happen. Right. Um and yeah, changes in lifestyle and and so on that, that just didn't need to happen and and did decimate the community. In eighteen seventy nine, gold was discovered um, gold. in the, stri- in, the st- in streams and riverbeds by the expedition led by Ramon Serrano Montaner. Okay, and this led to a gold rush. Um, in the subsequent years, not immediately, but um, once word got out, there was a there was people coming from quite far away. But first, I'd just like to mention that there was a... In 1881, the Boundary Treaty established the, the limits between oh, Chile yeah. and Argentina. Yeah. So both had been independent for about 60 or 70 years at this point. And they agreed to both give up their wholesale claims to the archipelago. And much of the country's 5,600-kilometre border, modern border, was determined by this treaty. Mm. Even though most of the territory was unexplored, so right, not enough of, of it, as it turns out. We'll find out later. Yeah. So, like, they drew a line down the highest peaks of the Andes. That was easy, right? And like Chile had been claiming bits of Patagonia and had been raiding Buenos Aires and stuff, and had been encouraging oh, wow. native tribes in in Patagonia that they had alliances with to steal cattle and sheep and stuff. So it put an end to some of that, but. Chile got most of Tierra del Fuego, except for a little bit of the the Isla Grande and some of the eastern islands that um, Argentina got. So they drew a line down the middle of the Isla Grande and Chile took everything south of the Beagle Channel and everything west of that line, which is most of the territory we're talking about. Weirdly, I just thought this was fun, that the US ambassadors to Chile and Argentina at the time who acted as mediators in this discussion were both called Thomas Osborne and they don't seem to have been okay. related in any way. Thomas okay. A. Osborne and Thomas O. Osborne. Uh, so that's just weird. Yes, yeah, so they divided the islands. Chile got the Straits of Magellan below the 52nd parallel and Isla Grande, South Staten Island and all the islands in the Atlantic were given to the Argentine Republic and all islands south to Cape Horn and west were given to Chile. So... Article five of the treaty said the Straits of Magellan shall be neutral, shall be neutralized forever, and free navigation assured to the flags of all nations. In order to assure this freedom and neutrality, no fortifications or military defences shall be constructed on the coast that might can be contrary to its purpose. So that's um, you know, an interesting thing. So, so Chile got to control the Straits, but not to defend them which seemed like a reasonable compromise. Sure. The King of England, Edward VII, would mediate some minor changes during his reign in the early 1900s, but um, mostly this would be 
the, the outline of those two countries going forward. So back to gold. Uh, in 1883, the gold rush really took up steam and it continued till about 1909 when when everything that was there dried up. There was never really that much gold, as far as I can tell, as is so often the case with gold rushes. Um, but Chileans, Argentinians, and, and a lot of Croatians, as you, you mentioned, Luke, um, mm. from right. what was then called Dalmatia. Right. I suspect they were doing the sheep farming and thought, gold rush? Yes, please. What was that quote? I remember you having a quote, uh, Mark, about gold rushes. Um the only people who get rich are the ones selling shovels. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember which episode that was from, but yeah, the only people that get rich in a gold rush are the people uh, that sell the shovels. Alaska, I think. That might have been Alaska it. Alaska yeah. was, yeah. So many settlements were founded during this time, obviously, including uh, Rio Grande and the Argentinian side and, and Porvenir and Puerto Toro on the, on the Chilean side. Mm-hmm. And the islands south of the Beagle Channel even saw some activity with about a thousand Croatians settling there but with very meager okay. results. So that's quite an influx. Remember, we're talking about maybe maybe there were 3,000 to 4,000 indigenous people. Wow, okay, yeah. Uh, at the beginning of this period, and now you're talking about 1,000 Croatians, which yeah. is, yeah. That's immigration for you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so back to some, some admin on the Argentinian side. Um, the Argentine Navy in 1884, led by Commodore Augusto Lacerre, came to Aswaya to install a kind of like a sub-prefecture or a subdivision kind of governmental outpost. Okay. Um, to really... A community centre. Yeah, to really claim this as their <laughs> their city, in their southernmost right. city. And they built a lot, the lighthouse of San Juan de Salvamente, which okay. is on Staten Island or, or Isla de, de los Estados, and became known as the lighthouse at the end of the world. It was almost certainly the southernmost lighthouse. And this inspired the Jules Verne novel, which was published posthumously, uh, of the same mm. name. All right. So, which has pirates and stuff in it. It sounds sounds like great fun. I'm not sure if Verne ever visited here, but he seemed to be fascinated by it. And given we stole our name from him, we should uh, yep. always mention his novels where possible. Shout out when it, whenever possible, yeah. And yeah, subscribe to his Patreon, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> well we're charging his account one way or another yeah yeah <laughs> um and yeah so Aswaya was named Aswaya was named the capital of argentinian tierra del fuego and as such the capital of of you know of of the malvinas and the antarctic provinces and all that kind of stuff the, 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 the in fuck, kind the of Falklands an aspirational you, sense you can say the falklands as well otherwise oh the, the. We, we wouldn't be representing both sides. The, the poor UK would be miffed. Screw them. I mean, the UK <laughs> has and does continue to control them. So any discussions reasonably, it's reasonably um, esoteric. Uh, but, you know, nice to have a claim. And apparently there is a big mural on one of the walls in, in Aswaya, kind of stating in large print, um, not capital of Tierra del Fuego. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Capital, like... Yeah. They're as bad as each other. <laughs> also, uh, a mural to a serial killer, uh, which is a bit curious. Who, what? Um, yeah, so... Excuse me? Uh, in 1896, a prison for dangerous offenders and political prisoners from Buenos Aires was set up on uh, in Aswaya. Um, and... Obviously, that brought a lot of, you know, measles and pertussis and so on. 
Um, the indigenous people were not recorded in censuses, so it's hard to know. But uh, by 1911, there were basically none left and the mission was closed in Aswaya. Wow. So there was an immigrant population, about 1,500 people, and they built a lot of the city and the train at the end of the world and various other projects as they were imprisoned there. But yeah, one one of the guys was um was a like a horrendous serial killer. He like killed loads of children in Buenos oh, Aires God. as a teenager, and pr- like when he was in prison in in Buenos Aires, like killed his co prisoners' cats and stuff because he liked torturing animals. And for some reason, there's a mural of him in Aswaya. I'm not sure if it's a, uh, if it's a I was gonna him, I was gonna ask what his name was, but actually screw it. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, he's he's probably okay better forgotten, which is why you'd yeah. wonder the wisdom of putting up a mural. Yeah. Um so that that's that's interesting. Um Wow. Those were the bad things happening in the south of the territory, but really up north as the gold rush took off, there's a, a guy called Julius Popper, a Romanian um Romanian adventurer what is it Wikipedia describes him as a Romanian born Argentine mass murderer engineer adventurer and explorer another mass murderer Um, can can we focus on that first one I feel like engineer it's quite the list it's like mass murderer engineer and he he had a bit of a life he kind of went off seeking adventure in Constantinople and stuff and eventually ended up in Cuba, where he designed the modern plan of okay. Havana. I, I really don't want to plug we another episode that. here because it uh, feels an gross. But we do have an ep- we do have a two part episode on Cuba. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We do. Uh, he then I think went to Mexico and read in in a, in a in a newspaper about the gold rush, and I thought, cool, I'll do that. And um, he seems to be very efficient at gold mining, but also really cruel. How can you be um, cruel so at gold mining, Joe? I gotta ask you. Like, with, with... Not cruel at gold mining, cruel at... He basically turned Teardal oh, Fuego into his own little fiefdom, where he would imprison people who robbed from him in like his own Great. prison, which you can't do. It really upset the Chilean government that this, this Argentinian right. guy was, you know, oh whipping their... Citizens. Their... <laughs> citizens who may have been thieves but that that doesn't give him the right imprison to imprison them yeah without trial his own presumably law. he also minted his own coins with the gold uh so that that's interesting but the really grim thing is that um he's one of the chief he's one of the chief architects of the Saknam genocide so between the sheep farmers who didn't like their sheep being hunted by people who've been hunting guanacos their entire many millennia history um, on land that they had owned for many millennia. So they would set, they would put bounties on the heads of the, the the Sognam of like a pound sterling per person killed. Wow. Which created a business in mass murder. The uh, British, the the London Anthropological Museum is arguably worse. They were offering eight pounds for a, a, Sacknam skull. Oh man! To study, oh. you know, phrenology and all that racist pseudoscience stuff that they used to do. Um, so really, truly awful stuff going on. 
because basically the, the the sheep farmers saw the indigenous people as basically another Pests. animal to be yeah sounds be like yeah controlled yeah and proper was much the same like he literally he literally hunted people wow and had photographs taken of him standing on corpses oh my joe, god joe just to check in what what year about are we here 1880s oh my 1880s, 1880s. Mm-hmm. oh my dear god right and this man is so, hunting people for sport basically and and photographing it like Ugh. he's he's demonstrably unashamed there were there were others i don't want to profile all of the genocide genocidal maniacs but this guy thought you know his right to mine gold and make a fortune and become a little emperor outstripped humanity um and oh there were there were various various tides of history working against the Sultan people in in the, in the region he was he was operating i mean they were being relocated to the Silesian missions on Dawson Island to uh, help assimilate them and, it, and the, the, the i mean policy. correct me if i'm wrong but it sounds like they they got basically no protection from either the chilean or argentinian governments either so the government saw missions as protection they would feed and clothe people okay. teach them spanish um christianity how to live in western society but stealing their culture and and their yeah their way of life so literally assimilate or die resulting in, his, in infectious his choice yeah in, it, depressingly stealing it would be nicer because it would still at least exist if you stole something from somebody at least the thing still exists they're they're obliterating their culture yeah they're kind of yeah. wiping it from existence so like your cultural erasure is a, is a kind of genocide and yeah. hunting people for sport because they're inland you stole from them is a much more literal kind of genocide yeah. and yeah. so all of this is happening simultaneously infectious diseases sweeping through people um yeah the the, the in a decade the Southland population went from about 4000 to 500 uh, I, I, I didn't i didn't know about this part I, I i literally just thought it was it was kind of endless disease and kind of the the normal stuff hmm. I, I didn't i didn't know about the this. normal terrible stuff no this is the a, normal this terrible is, stuff this is yeah. extra terrible stuff well i suppose That's at least you could you could give people some benefit of the doubt that they didn't know no, they were bringing exactly, measles yeah. taking pictures beside packed stacks of corpses though is is kind of it's a bit more overt yeah. Um, um yeah exactly it's a bit on the nose um You'll be glad to hear Popper died at the age of 35 mysteriously Good. in Buenos Aires, possibly poisoned by somebody he made an enemy of. Hopefully poisoned. Um, I can't imagine who. Well, yeah. I mean, he seemed to have a lot of enemies. Hunting uh, people yeah, for sport so, will do that. And I, I didn't say that before the Silesian missions were brought in to Dawson Island, uh, Chile had initially set up just concentration camps there. And I think were petitioned by the, the Catholics to to, you know, could we try a different approach please right um and to to give some credit a lot of the missionaries do seem to have had more sympathetic views they they weren't wholesale monsters in the same way like they they even didn't always seem to push the religion particularly hard um a lot of the records of the the Saltnam and Yagan religions and language are by the the missionaries the missionaries who went right. to yeah i mean you, you know, mentioned so, that earlier as well the dictionary like the only sort of surviving record of their of their language was um was by, by, by bridges, by bridges yeah. or the missionary yeah. yeah so and 
I suppose just the the last person I'd like to mention uh, is was was one of those missionaries, a German Austrian divine word missionary um, called Martin Gesinde, who was an anthropologist of sorts and a photographer. Oh, um, right. yeah. So he made many trips to Tierra del Fuego. I don't think he was based there. No, he seems to have returned um, several times. But yeah, um, yeah his uh, yeah, I, I think we both watched the documentary about him, Joe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the the I don't know if you saw it, Mark, but like the the photographs, yeah, did, yeah. yeah, the photographs are just incredible. Like some of the photographs that he got of of the yes, and I, I found I found a different. Um, a different video about those photographs kind of pointing out how, how they kind of return to humanity to people who could have just become a footnote in history. Mm. Like they are beautiful portraits of individual people who he had to really convince, you know, they were terrified of the camera oh, initially. Yeah. They kind of thought it was, as is quite typical in, in tribal cultures, that their soul would be stolen by being trapped in the camera. Yeah. Um, they could be right. You know, I wonder if I have a soul left anymore after all those selfies. But um, he took some beautiful photographs, and I mentioned earlier about all the the paint, body paint, and the the different adornments people put on themselves to, for different ceremonial reasons. That's all recorded because of him. There are audio recordings of songs, um, and he was actually like he went from being rather rather dismissive initially, um, the kind of typical you know, these are mere savages kind of view. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, but the impression I got was that was his, his first... That seems to have been his first account, impression. Then I, 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 my understanding, as you said, is that he, the more he returned and the more that he, the more time mm. that he spent with these people, the more he kind of um, began to understand and sympathize with them. Um, yeah, and in, in towards the end, he really lamented seeing them in European clothing yeah. at the missions. Yeah. He kind of thought this was, they just looked wrong. They were supposed to be these free people with their relationship with their land and all that and and uh now that he understood it a little bit better he he was really sad yeah and, and some of the pictures that he takes i mean I, i'd recommend almost anybody to just you know who's found this podcast interesting so far to take a look at it's a 10 or 15 minute documentary uh available on youtube and it, it's, it's pretty just, haunting actually it's, it's really yeah uh, and like, it just and just some of the images ooh. of the people like because I, I think uh again i could be wrong here joe but i think some of these pictures like show them dressing up as spirits was like something something yes. that they they, they yes. did regularly so, uh, and so they've got all, the, I, all these I, kinds I, of I, crazy body paint and like they're like covered in feathers and have like full um full like uh headgear and stuff like this that like just looks mm-hmm. really bizarre um but also is, is so i i can talk a little bit about what one of those those um, sure. traditions but just, just to say, he reckoned there were 279 Seltnam left alive during his wow. visit. Oh, my God. Visits in the early, in the 20s, basically. Uh, down from, as I said, about 4,000 in the late 1800s. So he was so he was so invested in, in learning about this culture that he was actually initiated into, into manhood through initiation ceremonies with both the Seltnam and the Yagan people okay. in his various visits. So he got to learn their kind of secret cultural things. And it sounds like historically initiation rituals could actually take years. Um where if there was a you know, if there was a beached whale turned up and there was a massive food source available for many months, all the boys would be taken away to a hut together to learn the secrets 
that only the adult males knew All right. uh, in their culture. And when Gazinda went through the ceremony, it was a much shorter ceremony, a couple of days long, re- kind of reminiscent of the glory days, but definitely heavily eroded. And the premise seems to have been that the the men would dress up as spirits and would scare the the boys and uh, react, reenact various cultural stories that were of importance to the to the mythology and the the, the religion of the um, the people and then it would be revealed that in fact spirits were just men dressed up in in costumes okay. and that they could confront these forces of nature and control them that kind of thing Oh. Uh, but of course, women didn't know this secret. Oh. So that was what set men apart from women. And so the boys would now, as men, fight with the spirits in the village to show their prowess as men to the women, okay. who of course had no idea that these were actually their okay. presumably husbands and brothers in costume. I let, Let's be honest with you guys, I feel like the women might have known. I, I feel, feel like, like they, they might have known. The women yeah. were being yeah. sound, like women often have to be. Oh no. Yeah, I think Spirits. it was heavily <laughs> I think it was heavily implied that that, that was the case. Yeah. But, uh, and I think there was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek element to it as well in, in some places. Where <laughs> I, I was worried this was going to go down its own dark path, if I'm honest. Is actually no, no, it don't seem to have innocent. done any um, weird uh, scarification or anything, which is nice. Because yeah. Inda died in 1969, and as far as I could tell, that's the same year the last full-blooded Selknam person is said to have died. That was a woman called Achala Loij. So wow, right. End of a end of a many millennia tradition. Yeah, shall we take a break? I think uh, yes, we can probably use a break right now. Yeah, please. Yo, 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 yo. All right, so uh, Mark, please tell us things get better from here. Um, obviously not for the Sognam, but um, you know. I mean, they, I can, you know, they're 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 different. I mean, it's it's not as bad for sure. I think they, I mean, if I'm honest, not an awful lot happens for quite a while. Um, cool. I think 1945 is a bit of a bit of a pivotal year economically for the area i think uh there's there's two big things i'm going to talk about and both of them really kick off in 1945 all right so first is oil um so there were some i think surveys before 1945 that kind of suggested pretty heavily that there would be some it was likely to be some oil in the tierra del fuego region i think they had found some uh some some potential wells in Patagonia, in Chilean Patagonia. Okay. Um, but eventually they, they did find oil on the Brunswick Peninsula, on the kind of the other side of the Strait of Magellan, on the mainland. And that kind of really let them know that, okay, we're, we're onto something here. Um, but in December 1945, Chile made their first discovery of oil on the uh, Cerro Manantiales, um, which is known as Spring Hill. 
and uh, there was more than 20 wells drilled in that field and it started producing oil um, commercially in 1949. So this find kind of shifted the exploration that had been happening on the mainland uh, down onto Tierra del Fuego. Hmm. Uh, and beginning in 1951, uh, activity led to the identification of more than 20 oil fields. And by the late, by the late 1950s, they had picked up eight you know, really big, significant fields, uh, the largest of the lot being the Cullen Field in 1954. Okay. So uh, when the Cullen Field reached its peak output, it was producing 8,200 barrels per day in 1961. Oof. All and right. and the Cullen Field alone accounted for one third of Chile's oil output. Between 1958 and 1961, several new fields were brought on stream. These fields were posed a lot of challenges to Chile's engineers because the oil was um, not on land; it was kind of just offshore, right. and. This was a time when you know offshore oil rigs were kind of either very new or even didn't really exist yet. So, okay, how how do you how do you solve that problem? Yep. You you do you do like Mr. Burns and you drill your rig on a very slanty angle. This is this is a re, you know, real thing. They basically just kind of build the rig on an angle, and they call slant wells or deviated wells, um, and. I th- I think they they were up to seventy six degree angles, and some of the the pipelines had a a length of up to three thousand eight hundred meters. Um, so very slanty, very long. Yep. Um, I drink your milkshake pro- kind of stuff. Ex- exactly, yep. exactly. Oil production declined in Chile, uh, and this pushed them to conduct more surveys across Tierra del Fuego, which led to actually an eighty five percent drilling success rate. The country's estimated oil reserves more than doubled to 450 million barrels, um, with about 300 million barrels located offshore in the straits themselves. Right. So uh, it's it's been a really successful endeavor for Chile. I couldn't find so much more about Argentina. I think they they do have some wells down there as well, but I, I don't think they've they've discovered the same uh, level uh, of reserves. As well. as well. Oh, well, well done. Well, well, well. <laughs> Um, so that's 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 oil. It kind of you know progressively becomes more important, and it's you know it's st- still a thing to, to modern day, as I understand. Um, so first the we other had sheep, thing, then we had gold, and now we have oil, and now we have beavers. Great. Uh, Sorry, so what now? Beavers. Uh, Beagles leave to it beavers. To hundreds of thousands of beavers. Of beavers. Um, so in 1945, a man called Tom Lamb who was a Canadian, uh, he owned his own uh, airline, or he, I think he would go on to found his own airline. So, so um, he, he was into sheep, was he? He, he, was, he was into beavers, and he, he was oh. asked to ship 50 Manitoba beavers to the small community of Ushuaia in Argentina. Do you know why he, collected... he was asked to do this, Mark? Well, because uh, nothing is hotter than fur. Uh, fur was seen as a really great way to make lots and lots of money, because they're basically uh, trying they to kick bring, off like a like a beaver a, colony, a, a, a domestic fur trade, yeah, okay. uh, with with beaver, right? Um, and beaver, it was, I guess, rather on vogue at the time, and they figured this would be a straightforward thing that they could do. So they brought fifty beaver over from Canada, uh, from northern Manitoba, and released them near Fa- Fagnano Lake at the mouth of the Claro River. So yeah, it it was it was an economic endeavor. That was the, that was the idea behind this. 
but you know it never never really worked out it wasn't really kind of pursued all that strongly they and, and also um the, the the fur kind of trade was always a bit boom and bust um right. like the, you would you would kind of like you know the gold rush idea um as soon as these people realize oh wow beavers in suddenly they'd run out and get a bunch of beaver pelts and collapse the market and then okay no one wants our our, our rotting <laughs> skins i guess i won't do this anymore and it would kind of you know cycle like that so and uh, my understanding yeah. of this mark is that um unlike in manitoba these beaver had no natural predators in this region right uh yeah basically they Which, introduced them to an area where there's no there's not really any predators to speak of at all yeah, yeah. unless the sea lions are gonna grab them the, like that's they, they also predated some other things like i think there were mink as well and mongoose uh and they they started eating the eggs of the local ducks and geese yeah, I mean the, so. the, the 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 muskrat. I think also mm, uh, the mus- favored from this. A, a lot of kind of what they we'll, we'll kind of talk about in a second about what they did to the landscape, um, kind of helped those other kind of mid tier predators. So the the impact of what they were doing went beyond just kind of what they were eating and what they were you know, what they were doing, but they created an environment that led to predators with, that would kind of just eat everything else that the beavers hadn't themselves directly destroyed right yeah they, so, they dammed up the rivers as well which they, so they, affects you know damned if you do uh, but mm. uh, damned if you're a river in Tierra del Fuego uh, and also what's important is that I mean the another thing to mention is that the tree types in Tierra del Fuego are very different to the tree types in Canada that in Canada they're very capable of kind of surviving flood because they're used to beavers who as you know a single group of beavers can dam a whole river uh, and and flood a valley basically so it, you don't need a lot of them to make a real impact on the landscape and that's fine in canada because the trees will survive the trees won't survive if you do that in tierra del fuego so a lot of the forests were destroyed by this oh, and continue you know, continue to be so all those forests that we heard mentioned uh, a, a lot of those forests aren't doing so well anymore and it basically turned the the landscape into a kind of a hellish waking nightmare uh, <laughs> Any, anyway, so um, in the 1960s, those beavers crossed to the Chilean side of Tierra del Fuego. They, remember, they were introduced on the Argentinian side. Uh, here's a quotation. They don't recognize borders. In fact, they eat the border fence, quips Felipe Guerra Diaz, <laughs> the Chilean national coordinator for the beaver project. Um, by the early 90s, residents began spotting beavers in the Brunswick Peninsula on the Chilean mainland, meaning the creatures had braved the unpredictable currents of the Strait of Magellan. So, uh, some of that is, is quoted from, a, I think it was a BBC article, but there's a lot of articles out around this. Yeah, I read, uh, I read the same quote, I think, in a Nat Geo article about this as well. Yeah. Oh, it was Nat Geo, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so research, researchers hypothesized, you know, with the mink and the muskrat also kind of, uh, being impacted, they refer to it as an invasive meltdown process. Wow. Um, which is which is which is pretty interesting. In twenty seventeen, beavers gnawed through the fiber optic cables in Tierra del Fuego, knocking out the internet. Wonderful. Real stuff, guys. Real stuff. No internet, no podcasting. So that, that stuff is, is real important to us. Um now I I mentioned this when we talked about Tierra del Fuego, I mentioned that for reasons that 
probably best to remain un- undiscussed. Uh, I had read about uh, some kind of uh, effort in Tierra del Fuego to shoot the beavers from helicopters and that the Chilean and Argentinian governments together put together 14 million pounds to have a beaver sniping program. Now, it was a while ago when I read that and I definitely did read it. I, I can't, I just can't reference it properly. But um, it, that was basically kind of a bit of speculation as to what they would do at the time because they were kind of talking about trying to have a, a proactive control process, by which I mean a kill-a-thon yes. of beavers. Yeah. Um, proactive control is how I, how I, how I choose to phrase that. Um, the, the big effort to kind of try to, uh, in a very kind of targeted and scientific way, control their, effort, control their numbers was in October 2016 to January 2017. Uh, and during that period, 10 trappers were kind of landed basically into this area. And there was use of a helicopter, but I think it was mainly for kind of transport between trapping sites. Uh, they caught 197 beavers and shot another seven. And they were they're very pleased with themselves because they, they thought that, okay, we've, we've sorted at least this area. We cleared this area of beaver. Um, but they had set up some motion trigger cameras, which then showed that there was actually still loads of beaver wandering around. So they hadn't really done anything. And um, apparently, the the average price is um, is fifteen dollars for a beaver pelt. If if you're in the market for endless beaver pelts, that's what you pay. But you could actually pick up one for an awful lot less, probably for a, a couple of couple of quid at this point. Um, Great. So um, that plan so... backfired spectacularly. <laughs> Uh, I've also seen kind of what it's done to the landscape being described as you mentioned the hollow scene uh, earlier, Joe. I've I've seen it referred yeah. to as the beaver scene. Wow! Um, uh, in terms of what it's done, um, yes, the hollow scene's to do with man, isn't it? The advent of man. Yeah, and this is the advent of, of the of, beaver. Of beaver. <laughs> this is the, the, um, the day of the beaver in Terra del Fuego. Okay, so I'm I'm just gonna finish off with one more quote about uh, beaver Geddon. Um, so this is a, a man called Manuel Burbel, and I think this actually might be from the BBC article. The number of beavers keeps growing and growing, he said. The day is going to come when they're going to be the only ones left here, and we're all going to have to leave. It will become the island of the beavers, he chuckled stoically at the thought, before continuing his anti-rodent rant. And I want to tell people in other countries who say what a cute animal the beaver is to think before introducing it. Its only natural predator is the bear, so they should have brought the bear too. Oh, no. <laughs> I wonder if they considered importing bears into Tierra del Fuego. I wonder are they getting that desperate, uh, or will will they get that desperate? I wonder. At at that point, you know, just um, don't introduce yeah. invasive foreign species yep. into into pristine, un untarnished uh, country. So, um. Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire, sounds pretty peaceful, right? Well, here's a surprise. <laughs> if we've learned so, anything uh, from this podcast so far. Yeah, and I mean, Argentina and Chile have always historically been, you know, enormously very chill, uh, well-run countries, uh, certainly not going to pick a fight over some in- uninhabitable piece of yeah. garbage rock. Well, not going to get argy or anything. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, so, um there there was a disagreement between uh, Chile and Argentina in, I think it was 1958. And it was about um, snipe, 
which was an uninhabitable nubbin that they both uh, claimed. This was kind of a, a general issue between the two that, you know, the, the border had been drawn, but it hadn't been quite perfectly, totally agreed where that border landed on kind of certain small rocks and little kind of islets within the channel. So that's why there was kind of this 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 kind of dispute about not really about the the channel, but the very you know nitty gritty of where the border lay on each side of of these little little rocks. Yeah, I I I will refer people again to um to the show notes where I, I have a map here of all the different border claims um since 1881, and basically all of them follow the exact same um. The exact same route until they reach the mouth of this channel where these these islands are right. and then they split into different directions depending on the different claim and it's 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 pretty crazy that like you're able to come up with so many different variations of the border based on just these three right. small islands so um i'm just gonna kind of give you give you the facts of it it's it's a little hard to follow because it's very silly uh, so <laughs> it began on the 12th of january 1958 and the crew of the Chilean Navy transporter uh, Micalvi, they built a lighthouse on Snipe. In April, the commander of naval operations of the Argentine Navy ordered the destruction of the Chilean lighthouse and its replacement with an Argentinian one. On the 11th of May, the Argentinian lighthouse was dismantled and transported to Puerto Williams by the crew of the Chilean <laughs> patrol boat, the Entour. Later on, of the 15th of May, the same crew recovered the remains of the first Chilean lighthouse that had been removed and thrown into the sea by the crew of the Argentine patrol boat. On the 8th of June, a new Chilean lighthouse was installed by the crew of the Leontour. The next day, the lighthouse was shelled and destroyed by the guns of the Argentine destroyer Aore San Juan, and a company of Argentinian naval infantry occupied the islet to impose the Argentinian claim. I mean, I'm I'm looking at this islet right now. It's like basically too small, yep. too small to fit on most maps. And from what I can tell, it's only it only appears on Spanish Wikipedia. But from what I can tell, uh, it's like less than a mile across. <laughs> like it's it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little islet. Like not even an island. An islet. So so what what happened in the end uh, was basically they there was kind of a rapid de-escalation after this because we were literally kind of getting one day apart between new new lighthouses. And um, they agreed a truce. And the, the terms of the truce were that there would be no lighthouse, which seems, in retrospect, slightly damaging. Uh, but there would be a withdrawal of the Argentine military. Uh, and that, that would be kind of where things sat for a very little bit, I think. Okay. Peace forever, right, Luke? Yeah, no, not not exactly. Um, in the 1960s, uh, then tensions were raised again uh, when Argentina began to claim that Picton, Lennox, and Nuvea islands in the Beagle Channel were theirs, uh, in contradiction of the 1881 treaty that had been signed between the two sides. These are slightly larger islands, um, but they they basically this is basically where, again, referring to that map where the channel opens. Uh, and these are the three islands I was I was talking about where like they, they you know depending on where you split the border, I think it affects um, you know depending on where the border runs between these three islands, it affects your claims to Antarctica is my what? understanding and and certainly to the fishing waters around around this okay. region at the very least. Um, <clears throat> so 
these claims would escalate and eventually lead the two countries in December 1978 to the brink of war in an incident known as the Beagle Conflict. So mm. the islands have a collective area, or the islands have uh, an area of 170 square kilometers, uh, 105 square kilometers, and 120 square kilometers. So very, very small islands, um, the three of them put together. But the conflict was not over the land itself. Um, as I said, it's it's about like the, the where the border is drawn and the waters around the islands. In July 1971, then, after the Snipe incident, which Mark just described, uh, both sides signed an arbitration agreement uh, named the Arbitration Agreement of 1971, which would refer this dispute to a third party, which was the UK. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Sorry, if, if you know anything about, like, the relative relations between... Uh... The insane dictatorships of Chile and the insane dictatorships of Argentina and the oh, UK. Yeah. This is very funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought you were laughing at the idea of the UK being a trusted arbiter in a island-based dispute oh. involving Argentina. Oh, t- t- take your pick. So this this happened in 1971, and they both signed this agreement saying that whatever, uh, you know, whatever conclusion uh, the British come to, then oh, you know God. we will agree to respect it. But in 1973. A couple of years after this agreement was signed, the government of Chile was overthrown in a coup uh, uh-huh. and taken over by Augusto Pinochet. Uh-huh. And in 1976, uh, <laughs> while this process is still ongoing, the government of Argentina is overthrown in a coup and taken over by a, a military junta led by Jorge Rafael Videla. So in 1977, uh, I'm sure very tentatively, the uh, judgment... <laughs> is published um and the entire document is available to read online i took a quick look at it but it's 264 pages long uh, i didn't read the whole thing but essentially the court awarded uh the navigable waters on the north bank of the eastern part of the channel to argentina but otherwise met all chilean claims um and uh-huh. the and the new frontier <laughs> under international maritime law would give chile significant rights running into the atlantic ocean and would also significantly reduce the claims of Argentina on the Antarctic continent and the water surrounding it. And Chile, very happily, uh, uh, Mr. Pinochet, almost immediately enacts this decision into law, but Argentina obviously does not uh, and doesn't feel very happy about this decision. Uh, This this essentially puts Argentina on a war footing with Chile, um, and Argentina's military was much larger than Chile's at the time. Uh, and in response to this, uh, minefields were deployed and bunkers were built on in some areas uh, of Tierra del Fuego on the Chilean side. Uh, on 15th of February, sorry, of, on 15th of December uh, 1978, Argentina's president signed the order to invade on the 21st of December, just before Christmas on 1978 at 4.30 a.m., However, the, the operations were later postponed uh, by a day because of bad weather conditions. And this is where our, our friend John Paul II, uh, Pope John Paul II, steps in just before this invasion is due to take place and informs both governments that he was sending a personal envoy, uh, Cardinal Antonio Samore, to both capitals to mediate the, this dispute. His business um, card just says, that's Samore. <laughs> very good yeah. uh so i i'm gonna jo- drop in a quick clip here um I, I i wasn't aware of this but there's a rome reports documentary channel which is okay. like documentaries about 
uh, things to do with the Vatican, I believe, mostly. This clip is a, a guy called Cardinal Pio Leahy uh, speaking on the importance of uh, John Paul II's intervention in this dispute. John Paul II, in the last, in the last hour, that he spoke to them, to, to, the, to those that were in power from Spinochet from one side and the military junta on the other side. He spoke so strongly and he said, wait, I come and he sent immediately a cardinal to see whether they could find a way. So on the 9th of January the following year, uh, so a couple of weeks later, the Act of Montevideo was signed, uh, pledging both sides to a peaceful solution and both returned to the military situation of early 1977. So they essentially rewind the clock back. So they don't solve anything necessarily, but they just say, like, we're just going to step back from the brink here. In 1980, the Pope proposed a solution that was accepted by Chile and rejected by Argentina again. Mm. Uh, and then in 1982, the Falklands War breaks out between Argentina and the UK. What? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the honest broker of the UK. Nah. Oh, Jesus. The Argentinian plan included the, uh, seemingly included the military occupation of the disputed islands at the Beagle Channel after the invasion of the Falklands was complete. But uh, as we know, that did not work out so well. Uh, Argentina lost that war. And uh, Chile, although it had signed the Inter-American Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance, claimed that it was not bound to assist Argentina in the Falklands War because it was the aggressor. And that pact was one of defense. So basically, they, you know, uh, they would come to the aid of uh, another country in the treaty if they were attacked, but not if they went uh, started a, a war of aggression. More, more of a NATO style treaty than a, you know, pre-World War One style treaty. Sure. Uh, so after the Falklands War ended, uh, tensions between the two sides remained very high until the democratically elected government of Raúl Alfonsín uh, took office in Argentina in December 1983. And under his leadership, the following year, a referendum was held on the second papal proposal, and it passed with 82.6% in favor of the deal. So in uh, November 1984, Argentina and Chile signed a protocol of agreement to a treaty in the Vatican, giving the, uh, giving the islands to Chile, but granting maritime rights to Argentina. That basically settled this dispute. And in 1990, then... Um, Tierra del Fuego and the, the, the surrounding islands were designated as a province within Argentina and uh, two years later was given its own governor. As around this time that uh, tourism begins to be a focus both for both Argentina and Chile in this region. In 1994, the Penal Colony Railway at Ushuaia was rebuilt and began services mm -hmm. again, replete with champagne and dinner services, which I'm sure were not available when it was first operating. <laughs> Uh, it is now known as the Southern Fuegan Railway, or the train to the end of the world. End of the world. Yeah, and brings passengers through the Tierra del Fuego National Park. So, yeah, and on the Chilean side, over the past 50 years, population has increased moderately, but the region still has one of the lowest population densities in the country. And interestingly, I thought since, since 2017, uh, the Ma Magellanes region has had its own time zone. Uh, and it, yes. Yeah, oh. Which... Uh, uses summertime for the whole year, presumably because um, you know it, it's it's so it's such a southerly point. Uh, like um, you know, daylight savings would basically be. I, I don't know. Um, so we, we didn't say that the Magellanes is is kind of Magellanes. Anyway, 
is is the name of like basically the, the Chilean the west, side, southwest coast of um of Chile. Yeah. Basically, it goes a bit further up than Tierra del Fuego. But yeah, I, I think it's. Like it's only fifty degrees south compared to where we would consider northerly in the northern hemisphere, mm. the southern hemisphere kind of peters out landwise quite a bit closer to the equator. Obviously, Antarctica excluded, which is quite big. Sure. But in terms of habitable bits, so I I don't know if it would be anything to do with daylight savings. I think it might just be that there's nobody there, okay, and maybe there's no point having. The clocks change. Sure. I, I, yeah. Um, just a very a last little bit on my section is uh, flag talk, hey. which uh, I mentioned at the top. There's there's two flags. So in 1997, the uh, Mahalenas region uh, in Chile adopted its own flag, and it is rectangular, having the heights two thirds uh, of its length and divided into two fields. The upper one is blue, and features the stars of the Southern Cross. And the lower half is a serrated yellow edge with a, a a white border. The yellow is the color of the typical vegetation in the in the area, and the white band symbolizes the snow that covers the mountains. So it's a pretty good flag. We'll have it in the show notes. I think it's you know it's it's pretty decent. But then two years later, Argentina decides to outdo them. <laughs> I think with uh, one of my favorite flags that we've come across in uh, the course of the show. So in 1999, the Argentinian province of Tierra del Fuego launches its own flag, and it has a white stylized flying albatross with its wingspan stretching from the oh, corner wow. to you know the Ooh, the top left corner pretty. to the bottom right corner of the that's flag. Cool. Uh, it's it's sort of like a what do you call it like a geometric kind of a series um, of polygons albatross. Yeah, it's kind of like polygons, a polygonal yeah, yeah. albatross, and and it divides the flag, and then the bottom half is uh sort of an orange yellow color yeah. and the top the the top right side is like a, a blue similar to the to the chilean version i like how the they kind of match cross. each other that's, yeah that's... they 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 have very similar color schemes and and they both feature the southern cross <clears throat> but i definitely prefer the argentinian version is the white meant to be the channel uh the white is meant to be an albatross oh right okay, in, okay. uh in the in the argentinian version but also I saw on Reddit somebody pointed out that it also sort of matches the uh, geography of the coastline of the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. So it kind of, you know, uh, I'll I'll stick a, a link to that, comparing it to the map in the show notes. But um, yeah, I that's that's definitely one of my favorite you know, flags. No, normally, when you see a Southern Cross constellation on a flag, you think uh, you think Pacific, yeah, islands. Um, so it's it's nice to see it in another bit of the Pacific. Yep. And we don't usually do provincial flags, but I thought I'd, I'd try and squeeze them in here because I thought there were two very good flags. So, on the yeah. basis of the presence of the Southern Cross, I would give both of them five oh. stars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good. I would I would handily give them, you know, nine or ten flags out of ten, I think, particularly the Albatross one. OK, let's talk a little bit about modern day. Um, yeah, I, d- I don't know how much I have to say. Yeah, um, I mean, we've we've covered a lot. Sparsely populated on both sides. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, the majority of people who live in this region live in the Argentinian side. I think 120,000 out of 135 or something something like that. And and we, we got that feeling doing the research. Like, there's a lot more Chilean claimed bits, but it seemed like a lot of the interesting stuff was happening on the Argentinian side, yeah. Mm. Um, and clearly that makes sense if that's the population breakdown. Sure. I mean, may- maybe a part um, of that is because, I mean... 
my my Chilean geography, apart from the fact that Chile looks like a Chile, like is is not amazing, but um, like it, it goes it, on for very long, and it has from memory, I think it has the Atacama Desert, and I think one of my kind of like you know primary school ge- geography facts was that like it had for quite a long time, at least at that to that, to that point before the global warming we've had for the last 30 years uh, it had it had the hottest point in earth in recorded history and it was like you know 60 something degrees or something crazy like that but it was in the atacama desert and as far as i remember i thought it was the driest place on uh, earth was my understanding as well maybe may, but I, mean, I could be wrong about that maybe one or the other or both but i guess my point is that you know chile has large big gaps uh, in it and i think that that has potentially kind of limited the amount of development on the Chilean side because there's essentially a blank space in Chile that you know, kind of serves as a natural border but in um, in uh, and also that you have the Andes as well which is, is also kind of a bit of a you know it, it limits the development in, in southern Chile whereas in Argentina you know, Patagonia is is still you know not as developed as other, other areas of Argentina 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 what the hell is wrong but um it, it's still more developed than its equivalent on the Chilean side. So it makes kind of more sense that the continuation of that, you know, urbanization and development and so on from, from Southern Argentina spilling into Tierra del Fuego would, would have more of an impact on the Argentinian side than the yeah. Chilean. I have a little bit here in, in terms of the, the, the kind of economy. So like the cost of living in Asuaya is much higher than elsewhere in Argentina. So to compensate workers here get paid higher salaries than the rest of the country. And there are like significant tax breaks as well. Uh, there's no sales tax, for example, and very low import taxes. Um, so it makes it a bit of a, like a shopping haven, seemingly, um, the city itself. And the main economic activities of uh, the region are fishing, natural gas, oil extraction, which we mentioned before, sheep farming as well, and ecotourism. And tourism is becoming more and more of an important part you know, as as we mentioned in this region, like it's, you know, it's marketed very heavily as the end of the world or the southernmost, you know, point of the world or whatever it is. And it's put it on a bumper sticker. Yeah. And it's it's also very um, popular for cruises and stuff, I believe. So like any cruise oh, right. which touches the Antarctic, Antarctic it will call yeah, yeah. here as well. Um, similarly with the Falkland Islands, like, you know, any anywhere in this region, like it's, you know, it's it's the main port at the, at the, the southern South tip South of, of South America. Yeah. So. You've also got the southern terminus of the Pan American Highway, oh. which is in Tierra del Fuego National Park. But you said the ecotourism there, Luke, um, and just some of the, the interesting no- notable animals in the archipelago. You get austral parakeets, seagulls, guanacos, foxes, kingfishers, condors, king penguins, owls, and fire crown hummingbirds, hmm. as well as sea lions and the southern right whale. So. Hmm. Those are all there. All right. I had a little bit on sports. Do you have anything on sports, Mark? A little bit. I mean, it's 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 an it's an area of the world, you know, jointly controlled by Argentina and or Argentina, as they prefer to be known, and and uh, Chile. <laughs> so uh, soccer. So they're they're pretty keen on soccer. But um, I was looking actually at specific um, specific teams because you know Argentina actually has a pretty you know well known domestic league and so on. I didn't really think they'd have a, a big club there or anything like that you know Boca Fuego or anything like that but um, they, um, they they do actually have a, a, a one or two leagues there the Argentinian part of uh, Chile Fuego has a 14 teams futsal league uh, out of Ushuaia with um, where, where the, the current and most frequent champion is 
los cuervos del fin del mundo or the ravens of the end of the world which is a very Ooh. nice you know it's uh, that's my favorite end of the world uh, uh name I've, I've encountered and it's a really uh, sinister soccer team name th- there's also the rio grande soccer league um which i think is also on the argentinian side but yeah. has it has the following uh teams inter de rio grande real madrid de rio grande oh, san francisco de rio grande <laughs> and and the following two which were the most interesting truckers de rio grande and o'higgins de rio grande o'higgins is, a, guys is a name that i came across in a couple of places actually yeah, yeah. he seems to have been uh, an irish guy that had something think... to do with the chilean navy right I think Bernardo O'Higgins founded the Chilean Navy. Yeah. Who, was he was he originally Irish or was his His father was Irish is my understanding, but I think he uh, was born in Chile. Is is again oh, I, right. I had a very quick skim of his Wikipedia page earlier. Um Yeah, he was born in Chile. Yeah. The illegitimate son of Ambrosio O'Higgins, first marquis of Osorno. Ambrosio O'Higgins. A Spanish officer born in County Sligo. I mean, he can get it. There's no question. Nice. Ambrosio O'Higgins can, he can, he can do. <laughs> that the is sex, one of the guys. better names we've come across in a while, actually. Ambrosio, Ambrosio O'Higgins. O'Higgins. Yeah. So Bernardo O'Higgins was a Chilean War of Independence leader. Yep. Uh, wow. So, all right. I, I, another couple of things I wanted to mention on sports. Um, uh, there's a, a a ski resort called uh, Caro Castor, which opened in 1999 and is again the southernmost ski resort in the world. Ice hockey, Should obviously. Should there be any skiing in South America? That's crazy. Yeah. Ice hockey is also very popular. Um, and there are two competing teams oh, in Ushuaia. Uh, and the National University of Tierra del Fuego, which was inaugurated in 2010, has its headquarters there too. And the right. last thing I wanted to mention was um, the uh, anthropologist photographer that you mentioned, Joe, uh, Martin Gazinda. Uh, he has an anthropological museum which chronicles the history of the Yagan people. Uh, and it oh, is yes, based in Puerto on, Williams, which is on the Chilean yeah, that's side. An isla, that's an Isla de Navarino. I think. Yeah, that's uh, another big tourist attraction, I guess. Um, I, I, I do have one little bit more. Sure. Uh, on the topic of languages, obviously, again, you know, Chilean and Argentinian, both Spanish. However, on the topic of the Yagan language, and we've talked about the kind of the dictionary and, and, and so on, but um, there, there, there is one person left who speaks mm. Yagan, who's, who's Christina Calderon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think now she is 89 years old. Wow. Uh, and she is the last native speaker of the Yagan language. Um, and um, she was uh, born on uh, Isla Navarino in Chile, uh, across the Beagle Channel from Ushuaia. Uh, mm-hmm. She didn't learn Spanish until she was nine. And um, she, you know, she's still kind of active uh, translating Yagan recordings and, and texts and so on. There's kind of one or two observations that there, she describes birds taking flight in Yagan using one verb for a single bird and another verb for a flock of birds. Um, and similarly, there's different words for launching one canoe or several canoes. So yeah, I thought that was that was quite interesting. Um, and there was other there was one other thing which was uh, about the kind of the Yagan language which is kind of one of these internet factoids that there is a, a kind of famous-ish Yagan word, which is, uh, and I'm obviously not pronouncing this right, but here we go. Uh, Mami Lapina Tapai, 
which translates to and can I give a, an extended description, but it's kind of the, the moment of silence around a campfire where information is imparted. It's kind of like a, you know, momentary weighted significance of, you know, secrets. It's, okay. it's, yeah, it's, it's like, um, but yeah, the, the, it, it's, it kind of falls into that kind of, uh, you know, internet interesting information bracket of, you know, there's a word for this really specific thing yeah it uh, is listed in the guinness book world of world records as the most succinct word jeez yeah it's and thus hardest to translate uh i mean what i have here in 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 quotation marks is it is the moment of meditation around the fire when the grandparents transmit their stories to the young people it's that instant in which everyone is quiet wow um it's it's pretty beautiful I think that's as good a place to end it as any, do you think? Yeah. Thanks for sticking with us until the end. You can find most, the end of the if world. not, yeah, the end of the world. You can find most, if not everything that we talked about in this episode in our show notes. Uh, you can find links to different sources and kind of the documentaries that we mentioned and videos and maps and all that sort of stuff that should be available in all your sorts. podcast player or at our website, 80dayspodcast.com. Uh, you can also find plenty more episodes there. We're coming to the end of season four. Uh, we got one more episode to go, uh, which I don't know. Do you want to give it away? Um, I mean, if you enjoyed this one, you'll enjoy that one. Tierra del Agua. <laughs> what? Our next episode is our Patreon voted season finale, and we will be visiting Svalbard in that episode. So, um, mm-hmm. which, which is, is the northernmost in, inhabited. Yep. The northernmost place. everything in the world. Um, so that should be quite interesting. If you enjoyed the show, if you um, if you like what we're doing, you like where you're listening to, uh, you can help the show in a couple of ways. You can support us on Patreon. That's a, a, a site where you can back uh, creators financially. Um, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. And you'll find a link to that in the show notes. If you uh, cannot afford to financially contribute these days, uh, that is perfectly understandable. Uh, but you can help us out for free by leaving a review on the Apple Podcast Store or a rating, and we would really appreciate it. It helps more people to find out about the show, or else you can just tell a friend, uh, share an episode on, on social media or whatever it is you'd like to do. You can also contact us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at uh, 80 Days Podcast or 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? If they go to timetoburn.com, they will find some things about me. Okay. Including a, a difficult to spell Twitter. Okay. And Mark? You find things about me, frightening, disturbing things, things you can never unlearn, at uh, MarkBoyle86 on Twitter. You can find me at my website, LukeJKelly.com, or on Twitter at the LukeJKelly. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in our next episode. This podcast has really gone south this season, hasn't it? Come on, man. Bye. (laughs) Adios.